Well, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 23 for tonight's study, Luke 23. We're getting there, slow but sure. Uh, getting where? Well, to the end of Luke, but I also have to say uh, to the end of our second time through the Bible. Uh, and if my calculations are correct, uh, next Wednesday night will mark the finishing of Luke. Lord willing, <laughs> James taught us to say that. Uh, Lord willing, we'll finish up Luke uh, this next Wednesday. And who knows, that's, we should do a little party, maybe a little party or something. So you never know what's gonna happen next Wednesday after the, after the study. Just a little heads up of n nothing too important. But it is the end of our second time through the Bible, so. Um, and uh, we'll pick up John uh, thereafter, you know, as we continue through the scriptures. Luke 23, last time we went over the kangaroo court trials of Jesus. Of course, kangaroo court, meaning, you know, really illegitimate court system, you know, using the courts sort of illegally in a way that was really, uh, you know, secret, secret evening, late night hearing so that the crowds wouldn't know what was happening. But um, an amazing thing in both, you know, the uh, secular courts of Herod and Pilate, um, they both saw no fault in Jesus, uh, which is an amazing thing. Uh, we know that Jesus had no fault. But it's amazing that that was declared by several people in the story that this man, I see no fault in him, you know? Um, and the more they declared him innocent, the more the Jewish people freaked out and said, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us, you know? And, um, you know, we, um, you know we, we learned about Pilate, you know, a few weeks ago by not making a decision and washing his hands of the situation. He made a decision about Jesus. Uh, at least at that moment in his life. But uh, that's something that you have to realize everybody is faced with. What do you do with Jesus Christ? Do you accept him as the son of God, the true and living savior, the one who rose from the grave? Or do you just say he's just another guy who died in, in uh, Jer Jerusalem on a cross like so many others uh, in those days? Um, but we, as Christians, Bible-believing people, we believe Jesus was God in the flesh who came and died on the cross rose from the grave and thereby saved the world from sin. Anyone who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be saved. Now we see in our story, Jesus is on his way, heading to Golgotha uh, here in Luke 23. Um, we sort of ended last Wednesday night on verse 26, but we really haven't uh, talked much about old Simon the Cyrenian. So let's just back up and finish up verse 26. It says, and they, uh, as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him, they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. What's the significance of Simon, the Cyrenian? Uh, why, why is that even in the Bible story? Uh, you know, uh, what's the big deal? Well, I think, you know, Jesus carrying the cross to uh, the hill of the skull, uh, Calvary, Mount Moriah in the Old Testament um, there, um, you know, the, there's a bunch of things going on here with Simon the Cyrenian that are just interesting to me. First of all, the Romans would um, have the victim of the cross, the guilty party, would sort of have to carry the cross through the town. Uh, we, we know it as the Villa Della Rosa. If you go to Jerusalem and you walk the Via Della Rosa and you're like, oh, these are very steps of Christ, they're kind of not. Just gonna give you a heads up on that. Uh, you'd have to dig 30 feet down from those current roads and get down to a different strata of archeological uh, ruin. There's places in Jerusalem where you can get down to the original roads of Jerusalem. And they've dug holes and archeological digs and you can see those. But uh, I always find it interesting, you know, it's a little bit of a disappointment when people go, isn't this the very road Jesus walked on? And the answer is most likely not uh, because of, um, you know, 2000 years. Um, but uh, the, the reason the Via Della Rosa is so important is normally they'd march the victim of the crucifixion with the wood on their shoulders, sort of to identify their guilt and their dread uh, and shame and all that upon them as they would have to go through the town. Often people would spit upon the, the, you know, the, the thief or the criminal uh, or what have you and mock them. Uh, it was just a horrible way to die really. Uh, and that would be your first um, taste of that kind of horrible experience. So it's interesting that that very symbol of Christ walking down the street would be for the Romans evidence of guilt. But I find it interesting is shortly after Jesus is carrying the cross, they tap it and put it on another and the other has to carry. Poor Simon, you know, have, have, I mean, there's part of me that kind of thinks, wow, what a bummer. Now we gather something that Simon was probably on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. 
uh, very possibly from what we would call modern day Libya, uh, Northern Africa. Uh, the Cyrenian, uh, kind of interesting. Um, uh, and he's, it says in our text here, uh, they laid, uh, they, as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon Cyrene coming out of the country. In other words, he'd already done his pilgrimage. Now he's packed up his bags and he's already on his way out, all dressed up, ready to travel uh, and with his suitcases or whatever. And suddenly he's tapped to carry this cross from this bloody guy. Like, what a, what a, that's a tough thing. How would you feel if you're at, PDX airport and you're getting ready to board and somebody makes you suddenly do something you don't want to do and you're like, you're trying to get ready to leave the Portland area and suddenly you got to do something. It's kind of a, a total weird thing. That's what's happening to Simon. Um, but it's a good picture that Jesus was innocent of his crimes by having someone else carry the cross. I think that's an interesting thing. Jesus, uh, you know, uh, we know from other texts that uh, he was beaten so badly by this time that it seems that his body was already failing. He whipped on his back, you know, those lashes with a flagellum. Uh, we know he's been beaten by the Roman soldiers. Um, but Simon the Cyrenian, he's mentioned in three of the four gospels, by the way. Um, and we learn a little bit by each one of the gospels, but um, he was uh, sort of impelled by the Romans to uh, carry the cross. Um, and the way that worked, by the way, the Romans had the right to tap you to do something for them. You know, like they would tap you with the tip of their flat part of their spear and say, I want you to carry my gear, uh, you know, and walk with me. Uh, and there was actually limits on what a Roman soldier could make a person do. Like, uh, you know, walking with them for a mile. Remember when Jesus talked about if somebody compels you to walk with them a mile, walk with them two miles. Uh, the idea is what the Romans would do. They would tap you and make you sort of do stuff. And you were under, under law required to do what the Roman soldier told you to do. So here's this guy, Simon, um, and we, like I said, he's, he's probably from uh, this place, well, Libya, which is where uh, this Cyrene uh, place, it's Cyreneca, uh, uh, which is where, it's, where he's probably from. Um, and so people speculate, who was this Simon, the Cyrenian? Um, and maybe when you're a kid, you colored the Sunday school picture and, and or you saw the, the, the picture in the book, you know, and he was an African black guy. Um, that's possible. It's possible Simon was just that, but it's also possible he was, he was a Jew. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. In, uh, the, the Jews, uh, a lot of them moved to Northern Africa um, many, many years earlier. In fact, it would be 630 BC, uh, before Christ, 630 years, that uh, the Greeks settled that Northern area of Africa. And over those centuries, it was infused with Jewish um, a population, uh, people from the Jewish region of Israel, they would go down there for various reasons. So um, it's speculation whether he was an African guy or uh, a Jewish guy, um, you know, but, but there he is, or maybe even just a Greek guy uh, that was there. So we don't really know exactly who Simon the Cyrenian was, um, but, um, you know, by that time, in, in the time of Jesus's day, that Northern Africa part was a large number of Greek speaking or, uh, or Hellenistic Jews, that is Jews that have kind of converted to Hellenism or that worldly view of, of the Greek empire. So the Romans stop him on his way out. Um, now, the, probably we know that he's there as a pilgrimage, very likely because he was a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why he probably was in Jerusalem doing the pilgrimage. Um, that's when it, why everybody else was there in Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, we know a little bit about that. Now, if he's an African guy, how could African guys from the North Africa care about Judaism? <laughs> well, there's all kinds of reasons Judaism really did spread. Uh, remember the Queen of Sheba there in the, the you know, story of uh, Solomon and what have you? Uh, she came and heard the wisdom of Solomon. And uh, so a lot of people speculate that there was a spread of Judaism way back in Solomon's era with the Queen of Sheba and that whole thing. So who knows how this guy sort of came to become one practicing Judaism uh, whether he's an African guy or one of the Greek Hellenists that settled in the northern part of Libya there. Um, but either way, he was there probably doing his pilgrimage, and now he's got to obey these Roman soldiers on his way out. He could be thinking, why me? Why was I picked? But um, I think he's an interesting um, uh, picture for us. First of all, what happened to Simon? We don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Simon. 
But we have something interesting, Mark's gospel. Do you remember in Mark, Mark chapter 15, verse 21, we, we were told um, that Simon, they compelled him to carry the cross who passed by coming out of the country. And it says there in Mark's gospel, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus uh, who bore the cross. So we know his son's names. That's kind of interesting. Um, and why would we care about that? Because later on, do you remember um, Paul in Romans 16, 13, Paul said, salute Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother, which is mine, basically. He says, Paul the apostle says, salute Rufus and say hi to his mother too, because she's like my mom too. Do you have a, do you have a person that's kind of like your mom away from mom? You know, uh, someone who kind of adopted you sort of as a, as a person. A lot of people have that. Well, that's what Paul said, Rufus's mom, could it be that that's the same Rufus that is uh, Simon's son and the wife of Simon, uh, the, the Cyrenian? Um, and the reason that's kind of important is some of us kind of believe that it's possible that Simon the Cyrenian became a believer. Now, by the time Paul comes around and says this stuff, Simon would have been a very old man. So maybe he was already dead by the time Paul, Paul doesn't mention Simon, but he does mention Rufus and his mother. Um, and so Simon is this amazing picture of maybe a guy who accepted Christ and the whole family got saved. It's very possible. But also we see sort of even a deeper spiritual theme, you know, of taking up your cross and having, you know, with Christ. Uh, remember what Luke 9, 23, we did a whole sermon on this uh, back a few months ago, um, where in Luke 9, 23 and 24, um, it says, and he said unto them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it, but whoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. So this idea of daily dying to yourself, uh, doing the will of God. We did a whole sermon on that uh, back uh, a few months back uh, in Luke chapter nine. But, um, you know, this is a way to live, to, to live uh, with a Christ, you know, centered life, denying yourself. Uh, the, the quickest way to be miserable is live for yourself. Uh, try to please yourself, make yourself happy. Uh, great examples of that are Hollywood elites who make themselves happy and famous and they find themselves miserable and destitute. Um, the key is taking up your cross, doing what the Lord uh, would have you do. To gain life, you gotta lose your life. Well, that's, Simon's kind of an interesting picture of that, literally taking the cross and following Jesus. Now, after we get to that, we come to verse 27 and it says, there followed him uh, a great company uh, of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. Um, one thing I wanna point out about this is um, the women of the gospel narrative are always so impressive to me. I say this often, but um, you know, I think that uh, womanhood is so challenged today, both secularly, but also in the church of Jesus Christ. I think you know, the world through women's lib of the 1970s has tried to erase true womanhood. Um, but sadly, the church is always behind, uh, and now we're really behind, and uh, behind in stupid things. The church is trying to catch up with the liberated world of women, but I would say, let's go way, way, way back. Let's, let's not try to be progressive in our thinking. Let's go way back to the Bible days. Just look at the women of the Bible. Uh, during a time when women really were oppressed and really were uh, rejected, and in some cultures around the world, even to this day, um, you know, women are greatly oppressed, but wherever the gospel of Jesus has reached, wherever Jesus was, the women were doing things that were of great value and benefit. Um, you know, uh, in all four gospel accounts, not one woman was seen as an adversary to Jesus. There's a lot of adversaries of men, whether you talk about Pontius Pilate or the high priest or even Judas or Peter. Um, there, there were, Jesus had men who were his adversaries, but the women were there supporting, helping, loving, worshiping. Uh, in fact, the women were the last ones to leave the cross and the first ones at the tomb. Um, the women seemed to be more insightful about what was actually happening. Um, you know, some of you girls that are uh, in colleges and universities and what have you, can I, just, can I just say, you know, how they blast away at the Bible and women and, uh, you know, this whole egalitarian and complementarian argument that's raging right now among churches, sadly. Um, I, I think some of the girls, you, you young girls should write term papers on wherever the gospel of Jesus was preached. What happened? What was the plight of women? 
Because I'll show you just globally, wherever Jesus has been accepted, women have been honored and blessed. Wherever Jesus has been rejected, women are still like back a thousand years ago, being beaten and you know abused and horribly treated. But um, I think Jesus is the ultimate women's liber. He liberated women. And, and, and the problem is the narrative, people try to say, well, the church is, is uh, against women. Well, some churches have behaved badly about women, I'll admit. But man, if you study the church of Jesus Christ, there were great, great women in the New Testament who were serving in the church. And, uh, and here's where the big rub comes, is just because you know, the Bible says that women are not to serve as elders or pastors, according to Paul the Apostle, very clear, by the way, uh, you have to do some real fancy dancing to get around that whole biblical thing, and people try and do. Um, but even though that, those two roles are not really, according to the Bible, available to women, there's a ton of amazing roles available to women. And I'm just gonna say, God created men and women differently. There's things women can do that men can't. And there's things men can do that women can't. Oh, Brett, you're being elementary. No, people are confused on this, trust me. They don't know. They say men can have babies and be pregnant now. Uh, there's some confusion on our culture about this. Um, but as it turns out, God says, I want the men to be the pastors and the elders, but, but what can women do? Just about everything else. And men can't deliver babies. We can't have babies, uh, contrary to your you know, health teacher in high school who's telling you other things. Um, but, um, but Brett, the Bible's oppressive. Wives, submit to your husbands. Oh, it's such a wrong teaching about submission. Submission is a get-to, not a got-to. Uh, submission is a, a place of, of blessing. It's like the word submission comes from to be under the covering of something. Just like you and I wisely chose tonight to submit to this roof. That's the same concept of the word submission in Ephesians 5.22. Um, we choose, uh, we could have held our Bible study tonight out in the parking lot. Would that have been wise? That would have been stupid. It's cold and it's raining and we'd be soaked and our pages of our Bible would be sloshing around and it'd just be a real bummer. But we're, we're smart, we're, we're not stupid. So what did we do? We chose to be under the covering of this roof and that's what we're doing. We chose to submit to our covering, the roof. Same exact thing when it comes to submission. <clears throat> the Bible says God wants the man to be the covering. He's the one who's supposed to take the hits. Uh, he's, he's there to bless and to be a, a blessing, not a bummer uh, to the woman. And the woman is to be in a place of honor, just like your cars are not in a place of honor. They're getting rained on right now. But you and I, we're in a place of honor. You have padded seating and there's heaters uh, in this building, sort of. Some of you might argue that point. <clears throat> but but uh, you know, the thing is, uh, it's, it's, it's a get to, not a got to. It's meant to be a blessing. And, and it's funny how people just make all these issues about women's roles in ministry. And oh man, the Lord is a uh, one who uses women mightily. I'm so thankful for the Athey Creek women that we have uh, leading the women's ministry, uh, leading teams on our staff. We have administrative roles where women are, they're not pastors, they're not elders, but they're at administrative level, uh, you know, leading teams. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's great women who do great things uh, in the Bible, in the early church, and here at Athey Creek. I think what, what you see happening here is congruent with what you see in the New Testament church. What you see in a lot of these egalitarian churches that are saying, oh, women can do everything men can do. They're just behind the times trying to follow the world and keep up with the women's lib movement of the 70s. And it's really hurting the church. I'm just gonna say the church is being derailed by a lot of the craziness that's going on in the gender issues within the church of Jesus Christ. Be careful on that one. Uh, I know as a man, all people will say, Brett, you're just a man. You're one of those misogynistic Bible thumpers, you know, or whatever. Uh, you can say that if you want, but I just would challenge you to read your Bible and uh, don't let people try to say, well, the actual, you know, Greek language says, no, it's, it's very clear what the Bible teaches about roles of men and women. Well, the point that I'm making here is the women in the story of the gospel, they all get an A. The men in the story, not of them do that. Not very many of them do that well, honestly. So I'm, I'm impressed by the women of the story. So why then will Jesus talk to these women and say, stop crying? The women are lamenting and wailing and Jesus is gonna tell them, stop crying. Is he being mean? Stop crying, you bunch of, uh, you know, weeping women. Is that what he's saying? No, Jesus is gonna use this moment to prophetically speak something that's heavy and powerful. And he's gonna speak it to the women. Why doesn't he speak it to Peter and the guys? Because they're not ready for it. But the women, I think, are ready to hear something really hard 
because their hearts are in the right place as they're weeping and lamenting Jesus going to the cross. Let's see what Jesus has to say. This is odd, you know? Picture Jesus walking down the road with Simon, you know, carrying the cross and Jesus is dripping blood off his back and he can barely walk. And he turns to these women and, and he tells them something like a little miniature sermon. Check it out right here in verse 28. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? First of all, what's the green tree and the dry team? It's a tree. It's really simple. It's good times versus bad times. Um, Jesus is saying, you know, things that are happening right now during good times, like crucifying me, if you think this is a bad thing, this is good times. You just wait until it's dry. There's a time that's coming, Jesus is saying. It's not like these green days. It's gonna be like dry times that are coming. This is what Jesus is saying here. Now, um, he's, uh, he's cautioning people. If people are doing bad things like this, the crucifixion of God, uh, the son of God, um, in the good times, the green trees, then they'll do much worse in the bad times. And that's what he's predicting. So Jesus is talking, I believe, about two events. Now you could argue which of the two he's talking about, or you can maybe, like me, think he's talking about both events. But there's two events that are linked to the sort of language or the verbiage Jesus is using here that causes us to know what he's talking about. Do you remember when Jesus went and they saw the big stones of Jerusalem's temple and the disciples, wow, look at the temple. Jesus, yeah, not one of these stones is gonna stay on another. And the disciples, what are you talking about? When's the end of the world gonna be? And that's in Matthew 24. The whole, you know, all of that discourse came out of that question. I believe Jesus is talking, number one, about that event when the Jerusalem temple would be destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, which was interestingly enough, if you do the math, 38 years later, 38 years later. Um, anybody know, uh, technically, uh, th this is one of those numbers we throw out arbitrarily, but there's actually a technical number people don't think about. How long did the children of Israel wander in judgment uh, in the wilderness? We all say 40 years, 40 long years. And, and I understand why people say that. And there's sort of a, a way of saying that that's sort of true, but there's something interesting. Did you know it's technically 38 years? Did you guys know that? If you knew it, you get it from Deuteronomy chapter two, verse 14. And the space in which they came from Kadesh Barnea, which was the beginning, until uh, we were come over the brook of Zered was 30 and eight years until all the generation of the men of war were wasted out from among the host as the Lord swear unto them. Um, so there's kind of an interesting thing about the, the year 38 year mark. Um, uh, uh, you know, the judgment upon the Jews in the wilderness wanderings. I think that's an interesting sideline. Uh, Kadesh Barnea was the frequent uh, stop during the wilderness wanderings, but it was where rebellion and judgment would take place in so many cases. But it would be AD 70 where Jerusalem would be destroyed. Um, and then 38 years later, uh, the, the Romans led by Titus would crush Jerusalem and crush the temple. And it'd be horrible. They would besiege the city and people would die and women, uh, there's like horrible stories that we've talked about, even fulfilling prophecy of cannibalism, stuff like that, if, if you've been reading the Bible. Now you say, okay, Brett, got it. So maybe it's the AD 70. I think that's one of the things he was talking about. But um, this, what is the second uh, possible place in time Jesus has mentioned? Anybody want to take a guess? If AD 70 is the first one, what might the second prophecy be talking about? The book of Revelation, the tribulation period, Revelation 6 through 19, uh, would talk about a time that's very similar. In fact, I believe AD 70, remember the dual fulfillment of prophecy? You see that all throughout the Bible, um, that AD 70 was a big moment. Some people say, some people that have differing views about end times and prophecy, they think that's when all prophecy kind of ends is AD 70. That's the whole book of Revelation. I can't believe that. It's just too much in the Bible about the future and the end that's still by far yet to be done. But I do believe it's possibly a dual fulfillment. The first one was AD 70, and then you also see uh, the, the time of Revelation. Um, and there's some language here that sort of gives it away. Remember in verse 30, we just read there in our text? It says, then shall they begin to say to the mountains, 
fall on us. Does that ring a bell? There's two places in the Bible where we read that. The first one, Hosea chapter 10, verse eight. It says there, and the high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come upon their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Uh, now, uh, I'm not gonna do a whole teaching on the book of Hosea. If you wanna, we can go back. But guess what times that's talking about? Hosea, I think, is also talking about both events, AD 70 and the future event of the uh, tribulation period, uh, abomination of desolation, if you're following what I'm talking about there. Revelation talks about this time. Um, and you say, well, Brad, I don't know about that. But the, the, probably the, the biggest dead giveaway of the calling for the rocks to fall on us and stuff like that comes from Revelation chapter six. It says, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the lamb uh, for the great day of his wrath has come, who shall be able to stand? Um, now, I know some of you are thinking, the wrath of the lamb? Oh, I'm so afraid. A sheep's running after me. And you're like, yeah, hey, you're like, I'm, a, I'm really afraid of that. What are we thinking? You know, Lambo? Like, is this really something we should be afraid of? Um, you got to remember, he came as a lamb, Jesus, but he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming as a conqueror uh, in his second coming. And uh, during that time of the tribulation, all the famous people, the kings and the powerful people and the bondmen and freemen, everybody in the earth, um, that the didn't accept Christ, who rejected Jesus, the Messiah, instead of calling out to the rock of our salvation, they'll be crying out to the rocks, fall on us, crush us, kill us, and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne. That's, that's the end of the story. If there's ever a reason you should think, man, maybe I should accept Christ and be on the right side of this thing when he returns, um, this is a good reason why. Because if you reject Christ and the, the time comes when, when Jesus returns and you are not part of his kingdom, you will so much desire to be killed by the rocks. You'll say, oh, rocks, is, you know, crush us, kill us. Um, and so uh, why are they, are they hiding in the rocks? Well, if you read Revelation chapter six through 19, um, plagues and death and hailstones that will be pounding this earth, it'll be over hundred pounds a piece. Uh, that's an Advil moment, if I ever thought of one, out there and a hundred pound hailstone hit you on the head, uh, you're gonna be in trouble. So they're gonna be hiding in the dens and the rocks just trying to survive the tribulation period. This is the time of the wrath of the lamb, the time of Jacob's trouble called the tribulation period, also taught in Matthew 24. So back to Luke chapter 23, we've got this uh, same sort of verbiage that Jesus is using of both AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, but also the future event that's still yet to happen. I think both events are, are what Jesus is talking about. Um, now, why does Jesus say, don't weep for me? Uh, is Jesus like saying, you shouldn't be sad for me? I, I'm not sure I would know for sure why he would say that other than we know his heart. Uh, remember Hebrews 12, two says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, weep for me. No, he was saying, don't weep for me. Why? Because he, was, he, was, he had a joy in his heart. Even though he was beaten and bloodied, he knew what he was doing and he had a joy that was set before him. So that's why he said, you know, don't weep for me. Uh, weep for yourselves because you guys have some troubling times coming. Um, and, and, you know, by the way, looking unto Jesus, the author and we look to other people too much, don't we? Uh, when, we when we need help, when we're in trouble, we, you know, we forget to look unto Jesus. Instead, we look to our psychiatrist or our medications or numbing ourselves through you know, screen time, watching TV, veg, vegging out, saying, I'm just gonna veg out and kind of forget my troubles or you know, drowning your sorrows uh, at the bar you know, or whatever we do. Um, instead, we need to look to Jesus, who's our author and our finisher of our faith. Um, and, and so this is all good stuff that Jesus reminds these women. So, so far we've seen uh, Simon and Jesus in the story. We see the women of Jerusalem and Jesus. Uh, and now we have the thieves on the cross and Jesus. And we pick that up in verse 32. 
And it says there were also two other malefactors. Now the word malefactor is, um, if you look it up in the Greek word, it just means um, like a, a criminal, like a bad criminal. That's all this word is. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so there are two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, um, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So um, this malefactor uh, um, is a bad dude, the word malefactor. But in Matthew 27, there's a different Greek word that's used that I think is kind of interesting, worth pointing out. In Matthew's gospel, um, uh, the, the Greek word is leistes, which um, means one who steals openly, uh, a robber, plunderer, stealing with force, uh, sort of like a, uh, you know, a pirate, just not caring. It's a little bit like, you know, these mob uh, rushes of these jewelry stores in Los Angeles and New York. They don't care if anybody sees them. They smash the windows, smash and grab, and they don't care. It's like, it's, it's just a bold, marauding. It's not, not like, you know, uh, you know, Ocean's Eleven or whatever, and they're sneaking in, stealing stuff. Uh, no, just smash and grab. That's, that's, it's just who cares. That's the kind of guys these were. They were open uh, uh, marauders is kind of the idea they're the ones hanging next to Jesus. But then in verse 33, we're introduced to an interesting word. It says, they came to the place which is called Calvary. And in your margin of your Bible, it might say right next to it, the place of the skull. What, what's the deal with this place of the skull and the word Calvary? Um, you know, um, a lot of people get cavalry mixed up with cavalry. Uh, cavalry is a military horse unit, uh, but cal calvary is the cross, or meaning the place of the skull. Wh where do we get this word? Well, the, the word's interesting, and you'll see several words associated with this place, and I'd like you to be a little familiar with that. Um, the word calvary is from um, actually from the Latin word, which means a skull. Um, there's, uh, there's the Greek word cranion, which means a skull. Uh, it's the entomology for the word cranium, uh, later made into a game that you play with your family. Uh, anybody play cranium? That's an old game that we used to play. Well, anyway, you got the, you got the uh, calvary, you've got the Greek word for the skull, cranion. Um, uh, but uh, interestingly, there's another word you'll see that's uh, also used in this case, and the word is golgotha. Um, which means place of the skull. And that's the Aramaic uh, uh, slash Greek version. It's kind of a, uh, a word that's sort of amalgamated over time, Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. So whenever you come across those words, Calvary or Golgotha, the hill of the skull, I think it's uh, Mark's gospel that explains, uh, also known as the hill of the skull, like a little clarification. Why is it called the place of the skull? Um, that's kind of an interesting question. And let me just give you a round. I'm not sure I know the answer. Uh, and I've studied this extensively. Uh, why do they call it the Hill of the Skull? One reason why I'm pretty sure it's not called that is uh, one that you'll hear all the time, especially if you go to Jerusalem, uh, up until a, a couple years ago. Um, this is a picture we took of uh, the Hill of the Skull. Uh, I think this was taken maybe 10 years ago. Um, and this could be the location, the top of that hill, it could be the location of where the crosses stood. There's reasons why, I'm not gonna go into that, but it's right next to the garden tomb area in Jerusalem, which is possibly the place where they laid Jesus. Uh, the tradition says no, Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and there's debate on that. Um, just when you go to Jerusalem, you can see which one you'll want, but just know this, it doesn't matter where it happened, it matters that it happened. Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave. That's the main thing we need to know. The reason this place is, is uh, called the, uh, they like to think this is it, is because of the way the rock looks like a skull. Can you see it? The eyes and the nose and all this stuff. The reason I don't go with this theory is because um, a few years ago, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem and the middle nose part uh, fell off uh, and it's not there anymore. And it doesn't look like a skull anymore. And that was only a few years ago. Can you imagine what 2000 years ago this cliff must've looked like? Um, I doubt it was even look anything like this. Uh, this is some erosion that's taken place over 2,000 years. So I'm pretty sure it's not called that because of this. If you've been to Jerusalem and they've shown you this, you're like, oh, this is surely the Hill of the Skull. You might wanna rethink that one just a little bit. Uh, sorry if I burst your bubble on that one. Uh, now, why else would it be called the Hill of the Skull? Well, there is a Jewish oral tradition that went down that's kind of interesting. Now, we know on this same mountain where this is, this picture was taken, um, which is right at the Temple Mount, the same strata as the Temple Mount. 
um, we know that there was a bunch of stuff that took place there. Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac on this same Mount Moriah, which is the same mountain where Jesus would be sacrificed. So it's very interesting. This place geographically is important. Jewish oral tradition claims that this is the place Adam's skull was buried. Now, do I believe that? I have no idea. Uh, I, I wasn't there. I know I look old, but I wasn't, I wasn't there when that happened. So I, I really can't make a real big argument that Adam's skull, but that's the Jewish tradition, why that mountain is called Hill of the Skull, uh, one of the traditions and what have you. There's a third possible reason that's interesting. Uh, again, I wouldn't die on this battlefield, any one of these, but th I'm just giving you reasons why it might be called Hill of the Skull. Uh, maybe it's because they just killed people there and they piled up the skulls of the people that were dead. Maybe that's it right there. The fourth possible reason, now this gets a little conspiratorial, but it is interesting. Are you guys into conspiracy theories? Uh, and I'll call it when I'm saying it in the Bible. I'm not gonna say this is for sure true, but it is interesting. Uh, and, and it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. You can jot it down in your notes if you want to, or you can flip there really quick. But there, there's a curious thing. That, it's the part of the David and Goliath story you didn't color when you're in Sunday school. At least I hope you didn't. Let me read it to you. It's First uh, Samuel 17, uh, verse 51. If you remember the story, David you know, ran down the hill, sunk a stone into his forehead. The Goliath killed the giant. An amazing story of the Old Testament. Was it the stone that killed Goliath or did it simply knock him out cold? That's an interesting question. Um, some argue that that's not what killed him. He wasn't completely dead, if you've watched Princess Bride. Um, uh, he wasn't completely dead at this moment. Some say, no, he, uh, when did he die? It's like Groundhog Day, when, remember the truck went off the cliff? And, oh, he could be all right, then it blew up. He's like, mm, no, maybe not. Um, that's kind of what's going on here. Is Goliath dead? Well, I'll just read it to you. Therefore, verse 51 of 1 Samuel 17, therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword, this giant sword of a giant, uh, took his sword, drew it out of his sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. Now he's completely dead. <laughs> cut off his head therewith. Now, now what did David do after that? Uh, check, this is odd, check it out. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled, they ran for their lives. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until the valley and the gates of Ekron and the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Shearaim, even to Gat uh, unto Ekron. And verse 53, the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents. Now verse 54, check this out. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but put his armor in his tent. Now you're saying, Brett, why is that in the Bible? Well, it's teaching us it's not a good way to get ahead. Sorry, no, I had to, you, some of you look concerned. Um, you say, why, why does the Bible tell us what David did? Now, here's the, now you gotta understand this head is pretty huge. It's a giant head, literally, a giant head. And David's carrying this head. Now, if you know where the Valley of Elah is, it's a long journey from there to Jerusalem. It takes like an hour and a bus drive. We do that bus drive. But David's carrying this head around for about three days, people believe just carry this big head around, Goliath's head, you know, and he brings it to Jerusalem. Now you say, okay, whatever. So David brings it to Jerusalem. Question, did Jerusalem exist at this time? That's weird. Is the Bible mistaken uh, calling it Jerusalem? Because when did Jerusalem become Jerusalem? Well, you know, decades later, when David would finally be crowned the king and uh, stop, you know, King Saul would be dead. David's now the king. So then he, they, they, he goes and takes the Jebusite city of Jebus. Do you remember that? And, and he sends Joab in, the shimmy up the shaft story, going up in the water system of, of Jerusalem and takes the city of the Jebusites and calls it the city of David. And it would be only after that it becomes the city of Jerusalem. So why is it, um, you know, called Jerusalem in this part of the story? Um, some would say there's a mysterious thing about what's happening with David taking the head of Goliath to the Jebusite city, which would eventually become Jerusalem. And so some argue that David went and buried the head of Goliath on the hill of the skull of the king of, Goli of, of or the giant of Gath. Um, now you say, Brett, that's, that's a stretch. I agree, but it is a little weird that David took the head all the way to Jerusalem. For what reason? We have no idea. 
other than it's just, the Bible tells us that. So um, that's the part you didn't color in Sunday school, the carrying of the head around and uh, David, you know, doing whatever he did with it. Um, okay, Brett, let's just say for a second that's true. What does that have to do with anything? Well, remember when Jesus would crush the head of the serpent? The proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel in the book of Genesis. Um, that's, it's interesting that Goliath, who is an interesting picture of Satan and, and you know, the defeat of Satan, uh, the son of David, you know, David carry on Goliath's head. Uh, isn't it interesting that the son of David, you know, uh, this delineation was given to Jesus. Remember Matthew 1, 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David and of Abraham. Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify of these things in the churches that I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Old Testament, Goliath, unconquerable problem, David, unassuming hero. New Testament, sin, an unconquerable problem. Jesus, the unassuming hero that crushes the head of our enemy, the serpent. Um, just kind of interesting correlation. So uh, when you get to heaven, you can say, Lord, what's the deal with the hill of the skull and why was it called that? Um, and if you knew, and if he says it's because of Goliath, you can say, I knew that. <laughs> but if he says uh, that was just a bunch of hogwash, uh, then you say, yeah, I thought so. Um, <laughs> that's, about, that's about the way I think of it. But is, it, is that interesting? Oh, good. Okay. Two, two of you think so. That's great. Okay. <laughs> You're like, come on, brother. Let's move on. Yes. So uh, back to uh, this. So the hill of the skull, um, uh, it might just be that there were piles of skulls because they killed a bunch of people there. That, that could be just that simple. Well, uh, Luke uh, 23, verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do and they parted his raiment and cast lots. Interesting question that Jesus answers for us here. Um, if you sin, but don't know it's a sin, is it still a sin? Yes, because Jesus says this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus said this, who is God, he knows all things. And he says something that they don't know what they're doing. So forgive them. Uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, sins of uh, ignorance or sins of innocence, whatever you want to call them, uh, it's, it's still sin. And um, the Bible, even in the Old Testament, kind of talks about the sins that were ones we didn't even know we committed. Um, and, and, and this is important because I think that the, this speaks to the problem of today. Most people today, if you are you a sinner? And a lot of people say, I'm not, I'm a good person. Um, but I always harp on that. We're all sinners. We all fall short. There's no one righteous, not even one. We're not even close. Like we sin every 10 seconds. Like, like it's something we have to understand. We, we are just the embodiment of sinfulness. Now, good news is though our sins be as scarlet, they'll become as white as snow. He washes away our sins. That's the good news. But I think there's a lot of people that think if you haven't murdered someone or if you haven't had a committed adultery, then you're, you're a good person. No, uh, even the sins you did that you didn't even know were sins. Um, you know, I, I find it interesting as, as a pastor of many years who've seen a lot of people come to Christ and how it takes sometimes years for people. I, I know people who were drug dealers and, and they were you know, selling Coke and stuff and then they got saved. And about six months later, they thought, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing that. I think that's sin. And it's like the Lord reveals to them that uh, this is a mess. You're, you're a sinning by selling drugs to people. Oh, and then they repent. The Lord, remember, you can't clean the fish. You got to catch the fish before you clean the fish. Jesus is the one who cleans us up. But the older you get as a Christian, the more of a sinner you realize you really are. And the stuff that you didn't even know was sinful, uh, you start to realize, no, I, I'm a sinner. Um, so... This is interesting, you know, when Paul said as a young man, I am a sinner, or we're all sinners. Then as a middle-aged man, he said, I'm a sinner. And then as an old man, he said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Uh, this, is, this is the thing. Now, these men thought they were doing something righteous by killing Jesus, which is totally crazy. Um, but it's also crazy when you and I look at our sin and realize that it's my sin that was put on the cross with Christ. So we gotta kinda understand this. I love Jesus's forgiving heart. Father, forgive them. Maybe that's something you should have as a Christ-like attitude when somebody sins against you and maybe they don't even know you, they've done it. But to have a heart of Christ, I will never forgive them, Pastor Brett. Well, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Before they even knew they were sinning, he forgave them uh, and was asking for God to forgive them. 
Um, there was an offering, by the way, in Leviticus chapter four for sins of ignorance, uh, specifically for the ones you didn't know you were doing. Uh, kind of interesting. Uh, even the psalmist David in Psalm 19, 12 said, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from my secret faults. Now there's a question on that interpretation. Was it secret meaning it was a secret to everybody but him? Like, uh, you know, Bathsheba and Uriah's death and all that. Or is David saying, it's even secret to me. The sins that I don't even know about cleanse, he's praying for cleansing. Either way, the Bible does seem to talk about how there's sins of ignorance that we don't even know we're doing. Now, another thing we see in there in verse 34, uh, they parted his raiment and cast lots. You say, okay, who cares about what they did with his clothing? But um, do you remember Psalm 22, verse 18? The, um, uh, the, a prophecy was given. They will part my garments among them and cast lots for his vesture. This is a fulfillment. Remember I always say there are 300 specific prophecies about Jesus in his first coming that were fulfilled in the person of Christ. Um, you know, this is an amazing thing uh, that, that uh, they would do this. Um, now, it's kind of interesting because the, the, some of the prophecies, don't forget, right here in this chapter, we're gonna see Tons of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus fulfilled. In fact, uh, keep your finger here in Luke and flip over to Isaiah 53 real quick. Just go back maybe half inch into your Bible uh, and come to the big book of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 53. What a messianic uh, you know, prophecy this is that Isaiah gives. By the way, this is one of those passages that the so-called professors, pipe-puffing, cardigan, sweater-wearing, professors in a lot of universities. There was a Deutero Isaiah, puff, puff, puff. And he wrote later, puff, 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 after Jesus, because there's no way that, this, that a, you know, a prophet could have known all these things about Jesus and the cross, puff, puff, puff. And they, they, they forget that the Bible's actually supernatural in nature. And this is, uh, uh, this is the same Isaiah. How do we know that? Does anybody know how we know this is the same Isaiah, even though your cardigan sweater wearing professor says it isn't? Yes, John chapter 12, John the apostle said, the very same Isaiah said, and then he quoted the latter part of Isaiah, and he quoted the first part, he said the same Isaiah. Like, that's there in the Bible to shut the mouths, or at least it should have, of all these, you know, academics who say there are Deutero, or even Trito Isaiahs. Did you know there's a Trito Isaiah? They believe there are three Isaiahs, but that's dumb. This is the prophet Isaiah, and what does he say? Well, let's just do some of the highlights. Look at verse 3. Isaiah 53, three, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace upon him. And with his stripes, that's the whipping on his back, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a messianic psalm that, or uh, prophecy of Isaiah that is. Look at, at verse 10. I'm just giving you the highlights. Verse 10, it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall by righteous servant, uh, my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion of the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, um, because he, he hath poured out his soul uh, unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Who, who are the transgressors Jesus to be numbered with? The thieves on the cross, the malefactors, and us. I think we're also numbered there. Uh, and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. You see, Isaiah really goes into this. Uh, since we're flipping around, go over to Psalm 22 real quick. Back up. Psalm chapter 22. This is perhaps the most amazing of all prophecies. And there's no argument. They don't try to say a Deutero Psalm uh, or whatever, because that's really ridiculous. But the psalmist... Um, this is a Psalm of David that's so messianic. Um, by the way, something you should know about when, when a uh, Hebrew or Jewish uh, rabbi was going to quote from an Old Testament scroll, they didn't say, turn to chapter 22 of the Psalms because they didn't have chapters. But they would start with the first line and it'd, it'd be like, instead of them saying, turn to Psalm 22, 
What, what the rabbi would say is he'd say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they're like, oh, okay, we know where you're supposed to turn. Uh, because they didn't have numbers. Why would they say that? Well, look at Psalm 22. They'd use the first line of a, of a section of scripture. So here's Jesus crying out from the cross as a rabbi teacher, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What should that have made the Jewish mind think of? What we know today is Psalm 22. Check this out. I'm just showing you the highlights. It says, verse one, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look at verse seven. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot the lip and they shake the head saying, he trusted others, or pardon me, he trusted the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. Does that sound familiar? Um, look at verse 14. I'm just giving you high points. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. What came out when Jesus was speared? Blood and water, which we know that comes from a heart uh, bursting literally uh, with water and blood. If you're a coroner and you hear this description, this is what verse 14 is talking about there. Look at verse 15, my strength is dried up like the potsherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and thou hast brought into me uh, into the dust of death. Um, uh, for the dogs, um, was the name of Gentiles by the way, the dogs have compassed me, an assembly of wicked have enclosed me, they've pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, and they look and stare upon me. Now. This is sort of a way of thinking, okay, how are my bones? And they're all still not broken. But his bones are out of joint, it said earlier in verse 14. What's going on there? Did you know not a bone of his body was broken? The Bible's clear on that. Fulfilling prophecy. But his bones were out of joint. And when you hang on a cross, your uh, shoulders would be popped out of joint. That was part of the suffering of the cross. And it was all intentional. Kind of interesting, all the details here. Look at uh, verse uh, 18. They part my garments and among them and cast lots for my vesture. Um, do, you, do you see how the psalmist is nailing down points of the cross right here prophetically? It's profound. And Jesus cries from the cross, my God, my God, signaling Psalm 22, if you would, saying, just check that out. And you'll know what's going on here on the cross this day. So the prophetically uh, uttered words of the Old Testament speaking about the cross, it's profound. Uh, and I just wanna show you that little moments that we have here tonight as we're in Luke 23. Back to Luke 23. So the parting of his vesture and raiment, check, fulfillment of Bible prophecy, Psalm 22. Um, then uh, verse 35 uh, says, and the people stood beholding and the rulers also with them derided him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he be the Christ, the chosen of God. Uh, that's again, like the psalmist wrote in Psalm twenty-two, seventeen. We just read about that. Check. Verse 36. And the soldiers uh, also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. Uh, does anyone know, is that a fulfillment of, of scripture? Anybody know what Psalm? Psalm 69, verse 21. It's right there in your margin, probably. Uh, most Bibles have that. If they don't, probably should. Um, Psalm 69, one. They gave me also gall for my meat and gave, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That's what Psalm 69 says there. Check. Verse 37. And the saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Uh, they were all saying that. Uh, and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And... A superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now you say, okay, Brett, great, got it. We, we read about that on, on Sunday. Now there's interesting things about this that are uh, in the other gospels. Do you remember in John's gospel? Let's just kind of review that for a second. John 19, 19. And Pilate wrote a title. We know it was Title who wrote that and made that on the cross and put it on the cross. We learned that from John. And the writing was, was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Um, why were they upset with what Pilate had written? Um, uh, it, it really has to do with how it was worded. 
They didn't like the way Pontius Pilate, don't say he is the king of the Jews, say he claimed to be or said that he was king of the Jews. But um, there's some interesting things about the way Pilate wrote this in the original language and especially what was written in the Hebrew. It was written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Um, now, what, what did that look like? Well, there's some interesting things. First of all, let's kind of break this down. And the, the, what, what was written on the cross? Well, it wasn't written in English, but I'll give you the English. Jesus of Nazareth and the King of the Jews was probably the better translation of exactly what Pontius Pilate wrote, if you kind of do the word study there. Uh, these are the Greek ways, the Latin way and the Hebrew way of writing. Um, now, um, What's interesting about the Hebrew particular one, uh, now, if you don't know Hebrew, did you know you read from, uh, from right to left in Hebrew, which is kind of weird, uh, but it's something you should know about. The Jews would look at their language uh, for acrostics. Does anybody know what an acrostic is? Um, the Jews did this all the time. Like Psalm 19, uh, it's, it's a, an acrostic psalm, which means, you know, the, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it starts with that letter. And that's why you see in Psalm 119, the alphabet letters of the Hebrew in the Psalm 119. There are other psalms where every verse of that psalm starts with the, um, in order, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's called acrostic uh, letters. Uh, and they look for stuff like that. And for uh, um, that in this, there was something I think they really didn't like about this, the way it was written, that might just be, and again, I'm not gonna die on this battlefield, uh, but there's some scholars who've pointed this out, linguistic scholars that are kind of interesting. When you take this, this Hebrew one and you take the first letter, remember reading from, from right to left, you take the first letter, you have the H, the He, Vav, He, Yod, um, H, W, H, Y. Now, uh, if you kind of correct the, that and flip it back into the order, the way we would read it, it's the Y-H-W-H. Does that ring a bell? That's what we call uh, from the Old Testament, the great tetragrammaton. You say, what's that? Uh, when Moses was there at the burning bush and he said, who do I tell them to send me? And he said, I am that I am. And how did they spell it? It was so holy. They didn't put the vowels, if you would, in there. They just kind of gave those Y-H-W-H. We don't even know how to pronounce it. Yahweh, Jehovah, Yehovah. How do you say it? It was Y-H-W-H, the great I am. And it's kind of funny because whether Pontius Pilate knew that he was doing that, uh, or if the, this is probably why the Jews didn't like it because they were into acrostics and the first letters and stuff like that. Just something to think about. Again, you can do deeper study on that and there's a lot of writing that has been done on this. What did this actually mean? But if you just take it at value, they didn't like Jesus being called King of the Jews, even though he really was pretty, pretty, pretty powerful. Well, Back to Luke 23, verse 39. We got to hurry now. It says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I think it was Alistair Begg went viral on a little uh, social media clip when he was talking about the thief on the cross. And I love what he said uh, because it was, it was uh, so good. But it's the same thing I've always felt. I love this story on the thief on the cross for so many reasons. Probably my favorite reason, if this guy gets to go to heaven, there's hope for me. What good thing did this guy ever do? He just, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, this, this, this whole thing answers all kinds of questions for me. Theological questions. Like, do you need to be baptized to be saved? Uh, there's some people that say, yes, if you're not baptized, you're not really a Christian. Well, that's wrong. Baptized is a work of the flesh. It's a beautiful, obedient work that we're supposed to do. And being baptized is an obedient act of a Christian. But it's not what saves you. Uh, you can't add to the cross baptism. You gotta be, you know, believe in Jesus on the cross and be baptized. Nope, baptism is something you should do if you're gonna be an obedient Christian. But this guy didn't get baptized. Jesus would say, hold on, we gotta get off the cross. If you're gonna be with me in paradise, hold it. Bling, 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 bling. Off the cross, go baptize him. Bling, 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 back up onto the cross. Okay, now you can die. 
Is that what he did? No. Uh, I love, this answers questions. It answers questions like soul sleep. Maybe you were raised with that tradition that when you die, you're, you go into soul sleep, which I don't believe at all. You know, for 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, I say, rather willing to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Jesus confirms with this guy today, not in you know, thousands of years when I come and you'll be wakened up uh, from your soul sleep. Uh, no, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, uh, and also, are you saved by grace through faith, not by your works? What good work did this guy ever do? Well, you might argue belief. That's all he did. He believed and he, he confessed with his mouth, Jesus, and he believed in his heart. The thief acknowledged he was a sinner. Verse 41 told us that. Uh, Jesus, that Jesus was perfect, verse 41, but he also um, knew that Jesus would be alive in his kingdom after death, believing in Jesus, verse 42. So, um, you know, earlier in the first hour of the cross, if you know the rest of the gospels, this same thief was ridiculing Jesus as well. But somewhere in the six hours of Jesus's being alive on the cross, um, somewhere in those six hours, his heart changed and he became a believer in Christ and he went to heaven. We're gonna meet this thief someday. I love the story of the thief on the cross because it just shows you the simplicity of how to be saved. Um, very important. Now, verse 44, and it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour and the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Uh, quickly, there's people that try to calculate solar eclipses and all this stuff. And uh, I'm just gonna say, I don't believe any of that. Um, does anybody know what time of year it was? Well, we know it was Passover. It's during a time of full moon. Um, and if you know that because the Passover is based on the lunar calendar, the Passover is always during a full moon, uh, which would take away sort of the, uh, the solar eclipse. And even if it was a solar eclipse, would the whole earth be darkened by that? Well, if you know the way it works, the answer is no. It says in verse 44, it was over all the earth, there was darkness. And uh, so what was it then? I just believe God caused it to be dark over all the earth. Maybe God stuck his hand between the earth and the sun. Uh, I don't know. Uh, remember his hand is bigger than the, he spans the universe with the palm of his hand. So that's not a hard thing for God to block the sun. So I don't get caught up in all the, what happens celestially when the darkened hour of the cross was there, the three hours. Um, so that's kind of important. Also, um, you know, verse 45, the veil of the temple was rent. We've done whole teachings on that. Uh, the beautiful access to the Holy of Holies through Jesus now, the new and living way, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, we enter in boldly by a new and living way because the veil of the temple's ripped. The symbology of that is powerful. Again, uh, we'll, we'll look at that further as we continue. Um, but by the way, in the six hours Jesus was on the cross, he uttered seven statements from the cross. And it's tempting to go into that right now, but because we're running out of time, I'm not gonna do that, but I promise, uh, Lord willing, I should say, I will try to do that in the Gospel of John because there's some beautiful words of the cross. Seven sayings of the cross, we'll probably go over that in the Gospel of John because you don't, we don't wanna miss everything Jesus said. And we put it all together, it's pretty amazing. Well, uh, verse 46, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, uh, thus, he gave up the ghost. Doesn't it interesting that it says he gave up the ghost? It's like he said, okay, time's up. I'm done, I've done. You know, you don't always, did he say, like we read last Sunday, it is finished. But he knew it was time. He knew it work, it was done, which you gotta love that. Well, we see a few people here now, the centurion, verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Then the next group you have is the people. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. The Jews are very expressive people. They're, they're smashing their chests. It, it's, it's kind of a brokenness. Like when the, you know, there's the Pharisee praying and then the, the sinner who was there praying and he, he smote his chest out of just uh, frustration of his own sinful depravity. I wonder if that's what's happening when these people see the righteous man slain and then they realize it was, it's them, they're the ones who should have been on the cross. The crowd gathering together realized something powerful just happened. And then in verse 49, you have the acquaintances of Jesus, all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. Again, the women are the last ones at the cross, the first ones at the tomb. 
Verse 50, and behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man uh, and a just man. The same had not consented to the counsel and the deed of them. He was of Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. So now we have this counselor. He's like a lawyer, but remember, he's one of those lawyers that were interpreting the law. Part of the Sanhedrin was uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Um, so he goes and asks for the body. He begs, would you please give me the body of Jesus? Um, there's a joke I heard somewhere. Uh, that Pilate said, why do you want to give your, your, your fancy own tomb to, over to this man? And Joseph replied, oy vey, he's only using it for the weekend. Uh, Yes, Jesus would only borrow this tomb. Uh, how many people borrow tombs? Well, Jesus would. Verse 53, um, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never a man before was laid. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath uh, drew on. And the women also, which came with him from Galilee, followed after and behold, beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. So again, the women are there doing this along with Joseph of Arimathea. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Well, in chapter 24, we get to see the most powerful event of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow, do you find as you read the story of the cross, you just, your heart is sobered up. Again, what my sin does, but what Jesus was willing to do for all of us who are doomed in our sin, Jesus is the savior. Um, there's nothing like reading about the cross, if you ask me. Well, Lord, we thank you for this passage and just the time we've taken tonight, I pray that it would just stick in our minds the truth of, of all these circumstances around the cross and that, Lord, we would be a people that uh, keep... Even as Paul said, I have determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The importance of the cross and what happened there that day. The way of salvation through the, through the perfect savior, Jesus. Lord, may we never take that for granted. I pray that we'd always have it at the forefront of our minds and, and also the message of salvation for all the unsaved. Lord, soften hearts. May people be open to hearing of the gospel, the good news of the cross of Jesus, dying for the sins of the world. So bless these people who've taken this time tonight on this Wednesday night. May it bring forth good fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.